Welcome to Thinking Ahead. I'm your host, Carter Phipps, and we're exploring the movements, trends, people, and ideas that are shaping our evolving world. Make sure you subscribe today on your favorite podcast platform, and most of all, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Last year, in one of the early episodes of this podcast, I interviewed Eric Wargo, author of Time Loops. I'd gotten to know Eric at a conference a few years ago at the Esalen Center for Theory and Research, and was impressed by him and his ideas, and we spent many hours discussing all kinds of stuff. I found his theories about precognition, retrocausation, the nature of the brain, the role of dreaming, all of it very fascinating. It explains a lot, a lot of normally anomalous and esoteric experiences and data that's often pushed aside by mainstream researchers. Eric is pushing the boundaries of our theoretical model, models further than most, but he's also very rigorous and he's a serious thinker who speaks to those who sympathize with his ideas, but also can answer and engage his critics. I always enjoy talking to Eric, so when I realized his new book was out, I thought it was time to get him back on the podcast. The book is called Precognitive Dreamwork and Long Self. If you want a bit more of an intro to Eric's work, you can always check out podcast three of Thinking Ahead. But we cover the basics in this one as well. So it's not necessary to go back to that one to enjoy this one. Let's welcome Eric Wargo to Thinking Ahead. Hi, Eric. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Carter. Great to be back. You're, you're the first repeat guest on the Thinking Ahead awesome, podcast. Awesome. Congratulations. <laughs> Good. Well, you had two books. We did a book and you had another book come out this year. So uh, congrats on the book. It's called, uh, for listeners, Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self, Interpreting Message from Your Future. And uh, if people have listened to the original dialogue, that was more about time loops they'll know that this is all about precognition and precognition and in particular dream work around the idea of precognition. So before we get into the details of the book and, and, and dream work and that whole perspective, let's start with what you, you know, essentially what you start with in the book, which, you know, for someone who has no sense that this is a thing, you know, mm -hmm. let's, let's, let's establish like the legitimacy of, of, of thinking about precognitive ideas, precognitive realities, and also how you got into it yourself. So let's start, let's start there and then we can get into the deeper stuff. Yeah, no, that's a good place to start. And um, I, I think one of the, there were a few sort of impetuses, if that's a word for this book. And one of which was just the incredible disconnect between what our sort of scientific culture, I don't want to come up. I'm, I'm not an anti-scientist person, but yes, uh, there is a real problem uh, around certain topics in, uh, in science or that ought to be in science. And one of which, one of those is dreams and uh, the reality uh, I am quite confident in saying uh, about, of, of, dream precognition. That is to say, dreams that foretell future experiences in our lives. This is an idea that is 
it is present in every culture around the world throughout history. Uh, it has been practically taken for granted that dreams often bring us visions or foreshadowings of things ahead. But our culture, Western European scientific culture since the enlightenment has denied uh, the possibility of dreams or any, anything reaching into the future. Right. Um, And there are interesting reasons for that, that denial. Um, And they have to do with the history of science, actually. Um, The, the scientists of the enlightenment, you know, Isaac Newton and his, that, that group of, of, of great thinkers of the, uh, 17th, 18th century, <clears throat> they realized that to create science as we know it, uh, you couldn't invoke miracles. And for them, anything, any cause that went in reverse, <laughs> that is to say, you know, uh, a dream that foretold the future, yes. that, that to them implied some kind of divine intervention or some it was supernatural yes. it was supernatural yeah uh and if you were gonna if they're if you're gonna create a naturalistic theory of causation and and how things unfold in the world it's just not fair to bring in the supernatural right i mean that's the, the whole point of the enlightenment right um, so and you can understand they were fighting to get right fundamental ideas that were really important, accepted right. in culture. So you saw that, you know, I've studied the history of evolutionary science. You saw this in that field as well. You know, just anything that seemed to sort of hint at something that might be associated with a religious context, however legitimate, however, whatever the evidence, you know, that was kind of had to be rejected at a certain point because they were fighting that rear guard battle against, against, uh, against the, you know, what they felt was the demon haunted world to use Sagan's phrase. And I think it's probably the same with this. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. And so, and you know, you know, honestly, most things in our daily experience are well explained in a sort of linear, <laughs> you know, that mechanistic, yes. uh, billiard ball mechanistic model of of the world, you know, really does a good job of accounting for, you know, 95% of things in our experience. Right. And sure. it enables us to build machines and so on and so on. Uh, but <clears throat> they, in in rejecting what was then called teleology, you know, causation yeah. from the future or from end points. Um, you know, they really threw out, there was a baby thrown out with that bathwater. And we now know, or we now think physicists, a lot of physicists now think that, you know, in fact, causation isn't so simple as yeah. it was thought in the enlightenment that, uh, that on the smallest scales, uh, that is to say the quantum realm causation is not, does not go a single direction in time that, that, that in fact, time causation 
you know, the order in which things happen is not well defined at the smallest scales of particles interacting. And what they're also discovering, and literally on a monthly basis, if you read science news, interesting, uh, they're discovering, you know, in the field of quantum computing, that yeah, in fact, you can scale up that that causal sort of indeterminacy uh, of the quantum realm. Uh, in things like quantum computers, you can reverse the temporal sequence of a uh, computation. Wow! In a quantum computer. I mean, this is like literally being just being reported again and again and again. What What are the um, implications of that? That's a that's fascinating. Well, the implica- really... right. Well, the implications of this are that quantum computers, and we can t- we can get into what a quantum computer is, um, but a quantum computer can theoretically reverse causation or, or theoretically produce, you know, the way I like to put it is, you know, you could theor- theoretically put, produce an output before an input. Okay. You could yeah. potentially use such a device to communicate across time. I mean, literally send a message into the past. Uh, that's the potential implication of this. Okay. Now what fascinates me about this research not is not only the technological potential of that. Um, but what it says for possibly what's going on in human experience, when we have dreams that foreshadow a future event in our lives. Yeah. Um, I don't think this is a supernatural phenomenon. I don't think it's a spiritual phenomenon necessarily. I think that this is, I think this has to do with our brain and the thing is, there's been a gold rush, really, for decades now to find evidence of quantum computing in nervous systems, in the brain. Interesting. And there's good reason to believe that that gold rush will be successful. Um, there are potential candidates, molecular quantum computers um, uh, inside neurons that could potentially perform this feat of getting information about their future states. Is this like the Stuart Hameroff yeah. view of, yeah. of, 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 uh, the, 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 what, the microtubules? Yeah. Microtubules. Right? I mean, it's not just microtubules. There are other yeah. structures in neurons and there's, there's so much we don't know about neurons and right. what's going on at the really, really micro scale. Uh, in, in the brain. I mean, neuroscience, you know, is very good at describing sort of the computational, uh, the sort of circuit level uh, functioning of brains um, and the ways different circuits and groups of neurons can <clears throat> connect to each other. The sort of connectome uh, right. is often called. <clears throat> but uh, there's so much yet to learn about what's going on at the really, really small scales. Um, and one of the interesting thing about, things about microtubules is that they control synaptic plasticity. That is to say, they, they control the reshaping, the literal reshaping of axons uh, as they sort of connect to dendrites and uh, form new connections or strengthen their connections or weaken those connections, these are the processes of learning and memory. Okay. Mm-hmm. And if these molecular, if these are truly are molecular quantum computers that are potentially getting information about their future states, 
Uh, and these are controlling the processes of memory. Well, to me, that right there is a, a, a very likely explanation about how precognition works and precognitive dreams. Because uh, dreaming, if there's any sort of consensus at this point among neuroscientists and psychologists about what the function of dreaming is, is that it is intimately connected to the formation of new memories uh, every night. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, so to me, you've got like these, these multiple lines of evidence converging on a possible explanation for this very universal human phenomenon uh, or human experience of getting, you know, images in our dreams about things that are going to happen to us later. And um, it has potentially enormous significance for our understanding of human psychology uh, and a lot of things. Oh yeah. So, so I think it's a very exciting. Um, well, well, that's I, I. I didn't quite realize we were making such progress with quantum computers. That that that's really interesting. That's great, and 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 it will be very interesting to see as we start to understand the brain. It feels like we made a sort of leap in understanding in in some of the neuroscience of the last few decades, and with fMRI studies and all that. And you you know, there's so much excitement about it, but it, fe- it feels like that's. Like it's been, you know, what, what breakthroughs are really happening? You know, it feels like it stalled a bit. You know, I don't know if that's true. I've been trying to get David Eagleman, one of my a friend who's a neuroscientist on the podcast. So I'm going to ask him about this. Maybe it has installed. Maybe I just don't know what's going on, but it feels like there's so much more to understand about the brain. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. I don't know. I don't, I don't know that it's stalled. I mean, I think there's a lot of exciting work being done on, on various specific problems and questions i mean the you know what the, the amount that we know about the brain is just staggering um, oh, yeah. but but like i said the amount that is yet to be learned about the brain is even more staggering because right. you know we can only see so small you know we can only you know there are you know what how many hundred uh 200 billion neurons you know yes. in, in a human brain uh each neuron has on the order of about a thousand connections to other neurons. I mean, when you see a neuron sort of diagrammed in a, like a, uh, a science paper or whatever, it's a very simplistic kind of cartoon that <laughs> maybe has like two or three, you know, axons connecting to, you know, uh, or two or three, you know, connections to, to another neuron. No, each neuron, you know, on average connects to about a thousand other neurons. <laughs> I mean, and Jesus. so the, the complexity is, is just mind boggling. Um, and uh, so, yeah, there's a lot, a lot left to understand. Um, and well, so, will hopefully, you'll, so uh, let's 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 say that the brain is a, as I think in your words, a quantum tesseract. Uh, and and how did when did you? So w- when did Eric Wargo first start to intuit that there's something going on here that is greater in 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 the dream experience than mm-hmm. Then, uh, then, then, then most people, then he'd realized before, and then most of us have ever realized. Yeah, it was a sort of a multi-stage process uh, on my part. I think one of the big turning points for me was a paper I talk a little bit about in both of my books, 
which was came out exactly a decade ago. Uh, and this was by an eminent Cornell University psychologist named Daryl Bem. Yeah. He wrote a paper called Feeling the Future. And what this paper was, was a was reporting on nine large experiments he had conducted over several years with large groups of Cornell undergraduates, where he essentially took some basic psychology paradigms um, and inverted the, the order of stimulus and response in these paradigms. Yeah. And showed in eight of the nine statistically significant uh, results that suggest that people are able to respond or pre-spond to stimuli that are going to happen to them shortly. So the stimuli happen after and it affects the results and what happened before. Yes. So like in one case, uh, the, he, he would give, uh, he would have students study a word list. Okay. And then typically in a study of memory, you would then reinforce some of those words again through a second practice phase. And then you would test, test them. Well, what he did was he would show them the word list, test them, and then have them show them like a certain segment of those words as like a practice phase after the test. I love that. That's brilliant. And and indeed, they tended to remember better, slightly better than chance would predict, slightly, uh, they would tend to remember the words that they were going to study later. Okay. And then his most famous finding was he had students sit in front of a computer screen, which had showed two curtains. Okay. And he, they were supposed to just guess which curtain was going to reveal a picture. Okay. Now there wasn't actually a picture behind the curtain, which it was, it was determined randomly when they made their choice. And then it would show them uh, whether they were right or wrong. And if they were right, they would show them a picture. Now, theoretically they should be right 50% of the time. Okay. And with enough trials and enough students, it should be like right at 50% basically. Um, But the students were more accurate than chance when the picture that was going to be revealed was erotic. Mm. Which would suggest the emotional, psycho-emotional content of the picture had an influence. Right. Right. Interesting. So anyway, a a bunch of experiments like that, all of which suggested what is sometimes called presentiment, you know, feeling the future. That is to say, it's not like a conscious, you know, consciously getting an image of something in the future or consciously knowing what's going to happen in the future, but that a future stimulus is somehow influencing your choices. Okay. Um, So this was a really interesting article and it really, oh man, it made psychologists furious. Yeah, I'm sure. Because if there's any group of scientists who are, uh, super hostile to anything smacking of ESP or whatever. It's psychologists. Yeah. And um, I happened at that time to be working at an organization of scientific psychologists as an editor. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I read this article. And uh, yeah, some of my 
colleagues were up in arms. I mean, they were considering writing a, a letter to the publisher of this of this study, um, saying that studies like this should never be published because it gives psychology a bad name. Because it, it couldn't possibly be true. Because it couldn't possibly be true. Um, so I got and, and, and there was a lot of. You know, I've read enough to see that a lot of people. There was a lot of studies afterwards, right? To 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 try to you know prove this was right to try to, uh, and a, a lot of people followed up on that study. So tell tell explain how that's done because I know some people yes. say, well, it was disproven later or something. Well, that's the that's what you'll read on Wikipedia, of course. Yeah. Uh, oh, is that true? Is that on Wikipedia? Oh yeah. Well, Wikipedia is a notoriously unreliable source for any information on anything controversial, frankly, <laughs> including parapsychology. I mean, it's there are co- there are cadres of, uh, of of skeptical editors. I mean, these are you know, it's an organized effort. That, that, effort by that is very side. interesting. I mean, this to, is a side to, note to re-edit uh, material on parapsychology and um, only cite skeptical sources, uh, and to claim that everything has been debunked. Uh, that's, so you're not going to get any kind of reliable information about parapsychology on Wikipedia. That's not not just parapsychology. And that's true of a lot of topics, unfortunately. This is, this is a bit of a side note, but it's a bit interesting to me because I just did an interview with someone on Wikipedia who's, who's suggesting that the social media world should use Wikipedia for, for fact checking and for because Wikipedia has been so successful and is so reliable. When we're talking about history and a lot of things. It's extraordinarily reliable when you're talking about kind of generally mutually agreed upon facts of history yeah, and, sure. and, and general medical knowledge and all kinds of things. It's it's really, but I do feel that that's the danger of it is mm-hmm. because it has very strong safe, very strong uh, you know uh, railings around mm-hmm. certain ways of thinking yeah yeah that does enforce uh and protects against conspiracies but it also maybe keeps new ideas out and that's kind of interesting that you're saying that yeah 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 um well i mean i i actually knew this firsthand i mean the organization i worked for was uh one of the initiatives at the time was to you know have uh its members have their students systematically edit topics uh, on Wikipedia that that had that be- had bearing on psychology uh, to make sure they reflected um, the view. scientific consensus, which doesn't sound uh, dangerous, except for you know <laughs> any scientific field is subject to its own biases and and yeah, exactly. Um, it's like in enough. general, that's great ninety percent of the time or whatever. Right. But if there's an idea out there that Right, he's not consensus driven. Not consensus driven. Yeah, or not consensus. You know, right? It doesn't doesn't fit. Then right. then you then you actually make it harder for that idea to ultimately uh, under for us to understand the truth of that idea. Exactly, exactly. So anyway, this you know this article, and indeed, as you were saying, uh, many laboratories around the world uh, conduct replications of BEMS. Um, studies that one of the points of his article, in fact, or one of the points of his the, his study design was to make the study design very simple, mm-hmm. and and to make the statistical analyses very simple, so right. so that they could be easily replicated elsewhere, um, and uh, a you know a, lo- a large number you know in the eighties uh, I think or seventy nine or eighty something like that uh, other laboratories replicated his studies successfully. 
Um, uh, so, but you'll still read that, well, you know, this such and such a lab, you know, was not able to replicate and thus it's, you know, proven his idea is false and so on. Uh, but it's not, the story is not so simple. Um, in any case, this was, uh, a bit of a, you know, it a bit upset my, my previous, uh, skepticism, I guess, about psychic phenomena and ESP. I, I had grown up in a psychological household. My parents were psychologists. I just had a, I guess, kind of a knee jerk assumption uh, throughout my life that ESP was probably not real. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't a strong feeling, but it was, just an assumption because that was part of the scientific culture I was educated in that yeah, I grew up in. Sure. So this finding was quite interesting. And at that point in my life, I had become interested in other paranormal phenomena. So it was kind of <laughs> like UFOs and things like that. And I was right. like, okay, you know, clearly the world is not quite as simple as maybe, <laughs> maybe as I was led to believe. believe. Right. So I did my due diligence and started reading up on the topic of ESP and precognition in particular. And I guess one of the reasons that I was so interested in precognition was that I myself had had dreams that seemed to foreshadow things that were going to happen the next day. Right. Uh, I had been keeping a dream record very assiduously for decades. Well, at that point, yeah, probably a decade and a half or or longer. And there were a couple of occasions where I just very clearly dreamed about something that was going to happen the next day. And, and when these things happen and you don't have a theoretical framework Framework, for understanding them, you just kind of, well, wow, that was really interesting. And then you just kind of forget about it. And then doubt creeps in is like, well, maybe it wasn't the way I remembered it or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, But Bem's article, even though it wasn't about dreams, exactly. It, it got me to reconsider those experiences and in reading about the history of the study of precognitive dreams and dreaming. And there is a, uh, a bit of a history there. I started to pay attention to it in my own dream life. And it's the kind of thing that you wouldn't notice, even if you are a, uh, a dreamer or a dream worker, you know, recording your dreams, interpreting them. Mm-hmm. Nobody thinks to go back to your dream records after a day or two have passed and just think about your dreams in light of things that happen shortly thereafter in your life. That's something that just doesn't occur to anybody to do. But when you do that, boom, you start to find instances of dream precognition again and again and again. And, and in most cases, it's not around big events. It's not around, you know, terror attacks and plane crashes and the kind of staples of our ESP literature around premonitions and stuff like that. It's around, you know, relatively mundane things in our daily life. Yeah. But they are, they all follow a pattern. You know, these events in our daily life that make some kind of emotional impact on us. uh, Often there's a kind of, there's a kind of reward in those experiences mixed with some kind of regret or guilt, or there's often a mixed emotion uh, quality to these kinds of Mm. experiences. And they're the kinds of experiences that seem to be a magnet for dreams the previous night or previous couple nights. Um, 
that foreshadow these kinds of things. So, yeah, you think of, uh, well, you have, in the book, you talk about 9-11 dream. So you think of dreaming and precognition or some kind of something psychic phenomenon happening through dreaming as being around significant marked events, either in one's own life or in the world. And I suppose that does happen. There's evidence of that in the literature, but you're saying, you know, it's much more pervasive than that. That's a, that's sort of those, those, those may be things we remember or write people write about or whatever, but actually it's, 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 it's right down to the mundane day to day. Absolutely. Those things that, you know, I think of, you know, think of life as a, as a mountain range, you know, and there are certain peaks that are you know visible from way off. Uh, and those are the things that sort of rise to our, that may really rise to our attention, even if we're not paying attention, uh, you know, a dream about, you know, nine eleven. you know, the night before, you know, okay, that's going to rise to our attention and we may even tell it to somebody, you know, that's, and those are the kinds of things that make their way into the literature. So, you know, you read a typical book about ESP, you're going to read those kinds of examples. Uh, often they're, you know, they're famous, someone, someone famous <laughs> has a, has a dream about yes, some big sure. event, you know, yeah. so, you know, uh, premonitions of the rich and famous are kind of a, <laughs> uh, a, uh, a staple of, of, you know, dime store, uh, ESP books, but, <laughs> but the fact is that those big world events, you know, are way in the minority of the kind of emotionally salient events in our life, in our, in our lives for the most. And, you know, most of us being, you know, boring modern people, you know, we don't, we're not living in the trenches. We're not like James Bond, you know, uh, right. you know, fighting enemies every day, you know, our lives are, are relatively boring. You know, they consist of, you know, zoom meetings and, and, you know, changing diapers and young kids. Yeah. Stay, the sink backing up. You know, I, one of the examples in my new book is a, is a precognitive dream about the sink backing up. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, as when they happen, those, those are emotionally salient events, you know, it's pretty, you know, surprising and upsetting when the sink sink backs up or the toilet backs up, you know, and yeah, you, right, you, have sure. to, you have to deal with it. And it's a, it's a impediment in your day. And, and these kinds of things, uh, uh, when you realize that you are precognizing these kinds of upheavals, um, even though uh, they're often centered on objectively minor things, it is mind blowing. It is mind blowing to realize that, wait a minute, you know, the time, time, consciousness, whatever we want to call it, is not operating the way our culture tells us it is supposed to. And it is, uh, it, it is a real, um, it's really life altering, honestly, mm. to, to start to experience this for yourself. And that's why mm. I wrote the new book to, to sort of get, create a guide to help people experience this in right. their lives on a literally, you know, potentially daily basis or a weekly, weekly basis or whatever. Uh, the point is once, once you start experiencing it, you start getting a taste for how it works, yeah. uh, and your own sort of your, your own brain symbolic language, because often, you know, the nine times out of 10 precognitive dreams are not literal. They're, the the, they're the symbolic. symbolic language that you describe in the book is, is very rich. And, and it just reminds me of my own dreams. I'm always amazed at the, 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 the sort of depth and complexities, the symbolic, I don't know whether the symbology is so complex in dreams, but it's very, it's very, it can be funny. It can be kind of clever. It can be really interesting and rich, but you, you really, some of your examples are really interesting. 
Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, even just leaving aside the whole issue of precognition, um, you know, one thing that we've lost in our culture is the the culture of dreaming and sharing our dreams and thinking about our yeah. dreams. You know, back around the turn of the last century, you know, Freud's work uh, with the, pre- the, the interpretation of dreams really was culturally transformative. I mean, it got people to got people excited about their dreams. Right. Uh, it's true. Whole yeah. Artistic movements, you know, grew out of it. You know, surrealism, um, you know, people were, were taking an interest in their dreams and realizing exactly what you just described. The, the brilliant, uh, the wit of the unconscious yeah. and, yeah. and, um, and somewhere we lost that. I think it, it had, has a lot to do with the, kind of fortunes of freud himself and psychoanalysis in our culture there's kind of an there's kind of an idea that he's been debunked somehow there's uh you know uh, you know in the over the last several decades um psychiatry you know went you know 180 degrees away from freud and towards and towards a more towards pharmacology, towards pharmacology. Not that that's not that that's wrong. Not I'm not criticizing. Yeah, not that, that that's bad. Terms. But I mean, there's it's, another. Yeah, but but we've lost that that idea of treating uh, our dreams and treating our symptoms and our lives as as something worthy of interpretation. Yeah, uh, yeah. and. Uh, and that's really sad to me. I mean, it's it's sad to me that that young people don't grow up. Yeah. You know, they haven't ever read Freud, or they just assumed that Freud was some old dead white guy that 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 is long long ago been debunked, and who, who needs to take you know pay attention to him? I, that's that's sad to me. I mean, it uh, is sad. I, I everyone should read Freud. I, I remember Anna Freud was actually very influential in me reading mm-hmm. her. But everyone should read Freud. Everyone should read Jung in some form or other. You know, it's like Absolutely. at least you should dip your your toes into that water because it's so rich. It does. I, I've never had the you know psychology by itself has never been my passion or my, but it changed the way I think about myself and life. It, it didn't determine it. It didn't define my worldview, but it was incredibly. I, I, I'm I'm a richer person for having dipped my toes into that. And I, it's so true what you're saying. Yeah, and we can we can do it every night. It's so easy. It's not you know the, there's this this doorway open to us every single night um, to just explore amazing realms. Um, and then on top of that, you know, now you can go right on the internet and find instructions for how to lucid dream and how to, uh, engage with, with other altered states, you know, without taking any, any substances, you can, you can can actually learn to have, uh, these incredible, you know, video game like adventures, you know, uh, in your dreams, you know? Uh, there's so much that, 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 that is open to us. Um, and, uh, people are just quite often just, just turn aside from that or, or don't, uh, realize the treasures that our night, yeah. <laughs> uh, presents, presents exactly. <laughs> well, and that idea that, that you, you know, the title of the book, you talk about the long self and that idea that in our our brains are much more than sort of self-contained in in this in this temporal space that they they are always sort of interacting with and participating with both the past and the future and that mm-hmm. that like the deeper self 
the higher self, the deeper self, the long self participates in this, in this, this, uh, in the, in the t- participates temporally mm-hmm. in the past and the future in ways where we're constantly interacting with our past self and our future self. And I think it, it when you start to think about it, it does sort of, it changes your sense of what the self is. It change and in the sense it, it expands your identity, I think. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's the, that's the real boon of this, you know, that's it's, this is not about, developing some new superpower. You know, I think people, when you, they hear the word precognitive, right. they get excited. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm going to like... Precog, Tom Cruise. ...to the future and, <laughs> and, you know, prevent a crime or win the lottery or something like that. And I'll, I will add that that, that is not... Uh, uh, out of the question. I mean, that, that does happen. People have gotten rich at the horse races, for instance, uh, through their name. That's interesting. But, wow. But you know, there are those cases, but right. the, the bigger reward that comes is this total transformation in how you think of yourself and how you think of your life. And it really awakens you to the fact that you are a biography. You are a story that is mm. unfolding and that has a destination I guess. Mm. And mm. that in fact, those random turning points in your life, you know, those, you know, that embarrassing thing you did back when you were, you know, 22, you know, that one time, maybe that wasn't just random, you know, that it may have been influenced by something you were thinking and doing today. Um, the same way, you know, your dreams tonight might be, might be influenced by some big event in your life 10 years from now. So in a sense, you're suggesting that, that the future events and, and maybe even more emotionally significant ones almost exert a kind of a cause, some causal influence or some, 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 some causal wind that goes retroactive. Yes. Is that, is that that a way of saying it? I love that causal wind. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, no, that's that's a great metaphor. Yes, yes. I mean, we are blown by by breezes from our future. Right. Interesting. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and and so let's talk from you. You have this line that struck me when I read it. You say, "Banish from your mind the idea that dreams so show us possible or probable futures." So it seems like it, they do in one sense, but I think I know what you're getting at. Uh, so explain to me what you mean by that. By yeah, that there's this idea that is perpetuated in the parapsychological literature. I mean, and you'll find it pretty much in any book that talks about precognition and precognitive dreaming. Um, and I think it's actually quite wrong, uh, which is the idea that, well, you know, dreams bring us images of the future, but that doesn't mean that those images aren't subject to our intervention or whatever. And the writers are trying to reassure you here that, you know, that, okay, well, the future isn't set in stone and, you know, you can, you know, you can, if you dream about something bad, you can change your, your history, all that. They're trying to reassure you uh, because we have a lot of uh, deep seated anxieties over over the idea of free will and fate and all that. And we can get get into that a little bit if if you want to. But um, I think that that, unfortunately perpetuates a very inaccurate uh, idea about how precognitive dreams work and what they are. Uh, I think that instead of showing us 
literally, literally showing us probable futures. They figuratively and symbolically show us actual futures. Okay. And that is to say that the future is fixed, although it is a function also of our freely willed actions uh, to bring about <laughs> our future. I'm trying to track those yeah. two together, know, but anyway, know, I'll keep, keep going. It's I'm hard, just... <laughs> but, but still, nevertheless, dreams are about things that actually will happen yeah. at in time, but we don't see those things literally in dreams. And, and it may feel like it's literal, but when it, when the, the event actually happens, it'll be, it, it'll be in some way that, Oh, that's what that meant. You know, it's, it's never, it's never, exact it's never literal uh it's often sort of transformed or inverted or 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 whatever um in in some way so and and, and that's it rarely they rarely present as something that are easily responded to right it's more about understanding the relationship between events in time and almost and how and how they play out over the in, in in the course of your own of your in the depths of yourself, I guess, more than presenting an alternative choice point is what right, you're saying. Right. Right. And it's kind of a, a theoretical quibble. And I think, you know, I think a lot of readers can just ignore this whole issue. Um, but I'm trying not only to help people uh, recognize and interpret their dreams, but to also uh, present a theory of how they work. And right. I think it's very important to insist on this, this fact that the, the, for precognition to be possible, uh, there has to be a future already existing in some sense. Um, the model that's often, uh, it's often described as the blocky universe model uh, in physics. And that's sort of the metaphysical context of it, or and, and to some extent, I guess, and there's physics that support that. Yeah, so every, Einstein. I mean, ever since Einstein, it, it was Einstein's relativity that really awakened people to the idea of time as the fourth dimension, as time as, uh, you know, we experience events as flowing in a single direction, but time is really a dimension, uh, just like the three dimensions of space. And uh, that means that events that that we subjectively anticipate in our future, they have all, from another point of view, they're all they already have occurred. Uh, the same way that you know an event in my past is only right now happening for another experiencer. Um, you know that this is what what Einstein's relativity theory showed that there are you know depending on your vantage point, uh, an event can be in the past, can be in the future, um, and which means that that those events that are in the future for us are still there. They're in the past for somebody else, <laughs> so they're just as fixed as an event my in in my past might be. You know, an event that you know that mm-hmm. happened. You know. I can't go back in time and change, you know, what I had for lunch today. Well, right. by the same token, I may feel like I'm all freely willed here and talking to you. I can cho- choose my words. I can raise my hand. I can do a little dance and it's all feels very, you know, uh, freely willed. And it is, but from a vantage point, 10 seconds in the future, it's already in the past. It's already been done. And you know, it's, it's a fixed, it's fixed. So the future is fixed in that sense. Um, uh, precognition depends on that. I mean, if there's, if there are events in a future 
somewhere. That's that's so this isn't some quantum indeterminacy, multiple multiple universes, you know, a thousand universes or a billion that branch off every second. I I always find that incredibly that to me, that's a very uh unsatisfying sort of yeah. I I know physics is sort of fascinated by that right now, it seems like well, and and science fiction writers, but I I find that very unsatisfying. I find it very unsatisfying too, and more and more physicists are finding it unsatisfying too. I think the it's called the many worlds. Uh, theory. I, I guess what I should say is rather, I mean, who cares what I think, right? But it almost seems absurd. <laughs> That's yeah. what I think as a, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a, like, like often religious, uh, sort of, uh, ideas about how the universe works are absurd, but that one pretty much approximates that kind of absurdity and it may even transcend it. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well put. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, there's a lot of reasons to think, and I argue this actually a bit in time loops, that that's a kind of, uh, that many worlds idea is a kind of hysterical <laughs> reaction uh, to, I think, the more interesting but difficult to conceive possibility of retro causation, which is the what allows the future to influence events in the present. And that is what is operative, I think, in uh, like like we talked about quantum computers and I think brains uh, and what and, and, and just so listeners know I mean I, when we say many worlds it's it's the idea that like every moment based on what decision you make a different universe could emerge from a choice you make and, mm-hmm. and a whole different timeline so like that billions of timelines of that on could that could take you through entirely separate worlds mm-hmm. could emerge at every choice point in there for every person and uh, yeah, I guess and and uh so that that's what we're talking about when we said yeah, that. So, right. You know, just to clarify that. Right. Uh so yeah, so if we look at so uh my wife had a dream the other night that I was surfing, which is not something I do regularly, or in fact I rarely do it, and I'm not very good at it. So this made this dream a little bit more concerning. And something happened to me while I was surfing on this wave. And I don't know, I had some major accident or something really bad happened to me. And she woke up in a kind of a panic about something, something really bad happened to me. So explain to me that why something not bad is not going to happen to me while I'm, should I not surf or is that, that, that really, that's the problem right there. See, I'm trying to make a choice. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I'm just, I'm saying this as a way of trying to speak about like, how do we think about the uh, dreams and premonitions in this sense? Yeah. Well, (laughs) it's so seldom that, that a dream a comes true in any kind of literal way. Right, um, exactly. Now, there are examples where it does happen, you know, and so I can't say that, well, you're not going to have an, exa- an accident while you're surfing, but uh, <laughs> right. I would say that, you know, the chances are still... I think I only there. have accidents while I'm surfing. That's yeah. the problem with it. I'm just kidding. Yeah, well, the <laughs> chances are much greater that, that that's symbolic somehow. and. Yeah. Um, and who knows what it's symbolic of, but she yeah. should just keep paying attention. And, right. uh, the more you pay attention to the possible symbolism of dreams and don't assume that they're going to be literally true. Um, the more you will have these experiences of like, you know, Oh, this like kind of dramatic, you know, very real seeming dream was really just a, was really a symbolic dramatization of some relatively minor um, 
emotional yeah. upheaval in my life. And yeah. uh, it's often something, you know, really laughably minor. I mean, in comparison yeah. to the dream itself, dreams always over dramatize. I mean, this is, this is one of the basic features of, of the art of memory, the ancient art of memory. And it's one of the basic features of dreaming, which is, uh, which I believe and what some scientists now believe is, is really kind of the art of memory operating automatically while we sleep. Um, you know, it takes events, uh, things to be remembered. It substitutes those substitutes them with some sort of crazy association. And it, it just creates an overly dramatic, exciting, uh, scene, um, out of them. Um, you know, here, you know, one of the examples I give in the book to sort of illustrate this, um, is I, you know, I woke up one morning, this was in, I think, 2014, 2015. Um, and I'd had a a dream. It was very, it was a very brief, just sort of a brief sequence of images. Uh, they were all distinctly black and white. It felt like a, like 1960s film. Um, and you know, it was like a, it was a, there was a, sailboat on the water this kind of tense situation on a boat between these characters and then there was a kind of an ominous picture of a car at an intersection a rainy on a rainy day and it was just it was kind of like all very ominous and uh portentous i guess um well i woke up i wrote down these images and i you know i realized okay there's a this is a specific movie i'm i'm sort of remembering in my dream. And I remembered the title of the movie. It was knife in the water. It was an early film by Roman Polanski uh, from Mm. when he was still in Poland. Um, And uh, I'd seen it many, many, many years ago uh, at a Slavic film festival and hadn't thought about it really since, but I do remember the title. So I wrote, wrote that down knife in the water. Okay. Well, a couple hours later, I'm at work and I get up to go to the, kitchen um to get a knife to peel my apple all right and i'm like mid-morning snack and i go into the kitchen it's this tiny little kitchen and the uh, the water the, the sink has completely backed up it's like the muddy water filling the sink and there was a single object in the bottom of the sink and you know you can guess what object that was right okay and it's like you know and i just had to laugh you know i have this sort of dramatic <laughs> these dramatic cinematic scenes. i love that that's very that's fascinating <laughs> you know uh but it's all to just express you know this foreshadowing of the uh, this minor upheaval in my morning you know and you know it's a minor thing but you know it probably was the most interesting thing that happened that day you know it's like <laughs> right. you know you go to work you know what else interesting <laughs> happens at in, right. in an office you know uh, <laughs> on, a, on a typical day you know uh, having that was the first time that i'd could remember you know the the sink backing up uh at the office and having to deal with it so um uh that's the kind of thing so so you having a an accident while surfing um could well could it could well be symbolic of a much more minor yeah um, upheaval in the sort of landscape of your wife's daily life Um, right that's good. Yeah. And, but, but, but occasionally let's, let's go to the other extreme for a moment. 
occasionally there are these dramatic examples sure. and you you tell one i is it in this book i can't remember the one with uh, your friend if 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 that that one it was one of the most dramatic and most striking yeah. because it had such an impact on multiple people's lives mm-hmm. um so there are those two that really stand out as these incredible uh just just striking examples of, yeah. of how this can work yeah but even that wasn't wasn't exactly what you think it was and that and the time right. i think you're talking about toby my uh, uh my friend um uh who uh, i can yeah. tell the story it's a kind of a long story but it's quite amazing it's um, an amazing story yeah, yeah go for it um so uh toby was a a housemate of mine in in my junior her sophomore year of college in at the university of colorado and and this was the 87 88 school year i believe and uh we were we were uh we were sharing a basement with like a bunch of other friends i i it was me and my girlfriend toby was sort of a friend of my girlfriend uh and a few of my friends from high school like there were seven of us uh sharing this like cheap basement apartment and anyway I, i did not know this at the time but that winter uh toby had a series of really horrible dreams in which she was trying to kill an old classmate of hers from like second grade you know this is a a kid that she had not seen or thought of in in you know many years you know probably a decade of her life right um, and wasn't even living in the same city anymore um but she had this these this recurring dream about trying to um uh trying to kill this kid in a certain way right uh, stab with a knife right uh, well I, i'm i'm not going to specify it was okay I'm not gonna, sorry yeah um anyway so fast forward 3 decades um we had completely lost contact after college you know um she had another dream about this kid and it prompted her to do what she obviously couldn't do back in 1988, which was Google him. All right. right. And she discovered that he had been murdered like actually 10 years before, you know, he, he, but he had been murdered in exactly the way that she had been dreaming that she had been trying to kill him in the dream. It's just crazy. Right. Okay. Well, but even crazier was the fact that this, like, this was like a, kind of mind-blowing you know upsetting exciting experience in her life i mean it was like all this mix of emotions uh real evil for her um and in the course of like she was in sort of a uh an excited upset transformed frame of mind um that day and she wound up googling her old housemates from that year and discovered Lo and behold, Eric Wargo has been writing about precognition and precognition. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. I didn't quite realize that all happened that day. On his blog. And Eric Wargo had just published, like two days earlier, published a book on the subject. Oh, my God. Okay. So so she, after some hesitation, (laughs) she she reached out (laughs) to me. Uh, and sort of gradually sort of told me, you know, this story. And not only that, I mean, she had been uh, an, 
a dream worker actually for quite a long time. She, uh, she had been recording her dreams, um, studying them. She had been doing wow. Jungian active imagination, um, quite proficiently. I mean, she's, uh, she's really an adept, um, dream worker. I call her a shaman. She hates being called a shaman, but I, I <laughs> she's totally a shaman. And, um, and her dreams were, were full of what she at the time had been calling synchronicities because that's kind of our, everybody's that's idiom. That's the word. People that's the word people use yeah. for these coincidences. But then she, she realized, Oh no, this is precognition. And she's uh, like this super precog. Um, right. anyway, so, um, uh, yeah, but the thing is, okay. So was that, was, were those dreams, were they premonitions of this boy, this, this childhood, you know, person's death, were they something that she should have used to warn him or, you know, like all these questions go through your head when, when you have mm-hmm. a premonition or a precognitive experience like that, you know, a, you know, they're always discovered in hindsight. So, you know, so you should, you know, one of the things I try to assure people in the new book is that no, it is not your fault. If something bad happens and you, it turns out you dreamed about it somehow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's no way that you could have used that to warn them or whatever. A, you would never have realized that it was a premonition before the event occurred. And B, if the event had, had not occurred, you would not have had the dream. This is why this goes back to that, that quibble that I was talking about the idea. Of, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. It's interesting. I mean, again, I guess it depends on how you look at it, but if the event had not occurred, you would not have to have the dream. So that's very, that's that, that forces you to look at it through a different lens. Right. Exactly. But another thing is, you know, was this really about this kid's death? Well, Hey, it, you know, she didn't actually find out about the death or how he died until like yeah. 10, 10 years after the fact. Um, uh, but also, you know, in, in hindsight, in kind of reflecting on the dream itself, uh, and, and what happened in the dream in the dream, she's kind of, he's this, this kid is kind of looming over her and coming towards her and she's kind of fending him off with a weapon. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in, in each of the dreams, she's kind of fending off this big kid looming over here. Well, you know, who, who was that kid really? Um, the, the it's, you know, he, the, the kid is kind of a stand in honestly yeah. for this huge upheaval. The dream is really about her discovery of her own precognition. Wow. You know, it's not it's not about the kid. It's the kid is standing in for for an upheaval in her life that ha- that occurs because of of this thing that happened to the kid that she was able to find out about um via the internet. But it's not the dream isn't really about him. It's about her. It's about something that that was going to happen to her 3 decades in her future. Wow. A big turning point. You know, it was a big, big deal. In her life. Big in her life. In her life. Yeah. And um, that's what's, uh, and the thing is, there's so many examples of this. Kind so of that she was precognizing the yeah. turning point. Yeah. 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 But, but of course she was doing that because only because she experienced yeah. it in the present. So that's what you call a in the original book, a, a time loop. Right. You can't, it, it doesn't tie itself neatly to the past or the future. Right. 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 Yeah. 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 <clears throat> it's like, it's not, it's embedded in both somehow. Yeah. 
That's fat. That's amazing. That's amazing. So what about, what about what seem to be actual premonitions in some way? Like, I think I was trying to remember, I, th- I didn't go back and look at the book, but I think in Perfect Storm, if you remember that book, uh, Sebastian Younger's book from the 90s, that was the, the huge book of the 90s. I think before that boat, the, the ill-fated boat goes out into in Gloucester, Massachusetts, you know, I think one of the, pe- the, de- the, the, the workers that was supposed to be on the boat came up to that boat that morning and had a bad premonition about what was going to happen and walked away. Hmm. Uh, you know, or so I, I believe that's right. I believe that that was in that book. Well, I'm going to check that out. I should, I, it's been so long, but I have this memory uh, of that, yeah. but, but there are events that sure. like that. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. so what's yeah. going on there? Is it the same? Yeah. yeah to talk to us about well, that. And sometimes that happens in waking. Sure. In the waking experience. Absolutely. Yeah. That does happen. And the thing is, um, uh, yeah, that's, and that's, and it's that kind of, kind of thing where this precognitive faculty really is looking out for our survival um, yeah. because these, these things do happen, but remember, you're not preventing the event. You know, when you're, you know, getting off, getting off a plane before it takes off and that plane crashes, that's a different thing from, you know, having a, a dream about a plane crash and preventing the plane from taking off, you know, that yeah, that's right. It's different. And, and, uh, because what we're dreaming about with a premonition like that, we're dreaming about our own survival. We're dreaming about right. the fact, wow, that could have been me. You know, I could have been on that plane. That's what you're dreaming about. And when you, yeah. and when, when you are paying attention enough to your own intuitions and your own dreams and so forth, that's when the precognitive faculty can really be a lifesaver. I think. And you talk about you. You describe it. There's a, there's a beautiful example where, or, or kind of a wild example where someone had a sudden urge to call her mother. This example, yeah. maybe you could tell describe that. I found that one really like that one. Sure, yeah, that was too. that was great. Uh, I think uh, the name I gave her in the book is Valerie. Valerie, right? She uh, she was in England. She was a student, I believe, at the time. Yeah, she was studying for finals at the time. And she was kind of in the zone. One of the interesting details about her story is like she was like distinctly in kind of this zone. She was like really she was like in a flow in state. A flow state. Yeah. She was in a flow yeah. state. And that is key because that yeah. those those states are really uh where we're most psychic, if you want to call it that. Anyway, yeah. she was in this zone. But, but just to be clear, like part of what you're doing here is you're taking the psychic idea yeah. out of the realm of um, reaching across space right. to feel something. Right. It's more about time and temporally reaching back and forth into the future, you're right? Feeling That's your future, true. exactly. Yeah. Good. Yeah. But she um so she was in the zone. She just had this urge to call her mother, even though she knew or she thought that her mother was not on her lunch hour at that time. She she and ordinarily, and she wasn't, uh, and this was back in the nineties, I think. So it actually cost money to place a long distance call, uh, to her mother. So it wasn't just kind of, it wasn't just pick up an iPhone, wasn't just pick up your iPhone and call your mom. Anyway, had this urge. And so called her mother turned out her mother was on her lunch break. Weirdly, her lunch break was different than what the daughter had believed. Um, and as they're talking, uh, the mother says, 
uh, listen, can I call you back? I need to go and, and just hung up and it kind of, uh, ticked off, you know, Valerie, uh, when this happened, but then a little while later, she got all that trouble to call. Yeah. Right? And the mother calls back and said, um, you know, what, what made you call at that moment? And, uh, because what was happening when she called was that some, she was out walking on her lunch hour with another woman and they were kind of on a sort of secluded street. And there was this very scary guy stalking them. And this guy had come up right up to them and, and they were afraid he was going to attack them. But suddenly her phone rang (laughs) in her purse and it scared the guy off. It's an amazing story. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I've heard so many stories like that. <laughs> and I've heard some of, you know, I think most people have stories like that in the, in, 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 not that they talk about publicly usually, but in this, in the, in their life or in their family's life or in the, in the kind of things people tell each other when they're, you know, it's late at night and they've had a glass of wine, you know, <laughs> things like those are the kinds of things you do hear about that happen in life that are not your every day. And, and, uh, it's, that's, that's, uh, that's that's fascinating that's very interesting yeah i think it happens particularly to people who are who consider themselves intuitive yeah you know intuition is just precognition by another name as far as i'm concerned and and do you think that like so you you talked about uh you know again we talk about this is more prehensing not reaching out across time and space and and like I, i was thinking as you were as you were talking like you could apply this. I, I think of, you know, we, we met at Esalen and I was thinking of Michael Murphy's work on like high performance and anything about being in flow states and things like that. And, and think about for athletes being in flow states and, and being able to do things. I wonder if in, in the micro temporal in, uh, empowerment of, of an athlete in a flow state part, if you're part of what you're doing is sort of you're you're there's this dynamic relationship gets set between the 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 immediate future and the now in a way that's interesting in a way that's part of what is the high performance i think that's totally totally the case and i uh, i I write about this a bit in time loops i I think this is exactly what's going on with flow states and high performance states because you know these these kinds of phenomena are reported particularly by people who are highly skilled uh, at, at like, you know, pilots are a great example. People, yeah. uh, like, you know, there's so many examples of pilots who report ESP experiences and, and, uh, who are precognitive or who, you know, make amazing remote viewers or whatever. I mean, this is, it's just, it's almost, uh, uh, it's, it's a topic, uh, of its, of its own that, that yeah. I actually want to write about someday. Cause I've got so many examples of this. Um, but huh. I think it's true of probably true of athletes, martial artists, artists, uh, yeah. any, you know, sure, any, sure. any artist knows that creative flow state. Um, and there again, artists, I believe, I believe what creativity is, is channeling from their future. Um, and that artistic inspiration is reaching into, into your own future, um, and for, for thoughts and ideas and, and that this, you know, when, when artists know how to get into that flow state, uh, artists, writers, you know, we have, you know, fortunately writers, it's like a channel gets open and and I almost think of it as like the way you describe it's like, 
it's like this channel gets open where the, where information is going back and forth at higher. You know, it's like it's not just one way. Probably it's but like there's a there's a kind of an open channel that yeah. that gets into a very different kind of relationship with whatever's happening in the present. It's right. very interesting. Right. Well, I think of Phil Dick. I mean, he's such a wonderful example of this. Yeah. Um, and I think if so for listeners, Philip Dick is the author of like Blade Runner and a lot of the great science fiction that we all still enjoy today. I mean, just and and, and work with time yeah. in such in, uh, unusual ways. And himself had all these incredible mystical and and precognitive experiences, right? He had then his future self. What was it you talked about his future self visiting him? What yeah, well, he had experiences of you know being visited by his future self, and uh, but he had all kinds of precognitive dreams, um, which are actually very well documented in his letters. Um, he had uh, he was constantly precog or foreshadowing things in his own life in his fiction. Um, uh, I mean, it was like he it was a, just a recurring pattern. Uh, for him but you know what's interesting about phil dick is that he was also like a struggling writer he was constantly having to churn out fiction to survive you know and i think that there's something about that kind of you know just churning out fiction uh that mu- that may be particularly conducive to you know to to just sort of accidentally like precognizing yeah, right. everything that's sure. happened to you. Yeah. Uh, there's something about that. Um, it seems to happen particularly with, uh, you know, you, I'm researching this right now. I'm I'm working on a, working slowly on a book uh, on precognition in the lives of artists and writers. And uh, the more I delve into artists biographies, you know, it's just a universe. It's just, it's such a common phenomenon but the best examples oddly enough at least in literature are not like great novels and great you know works of of fiction it tends to be the kind of crappy <laughs> crappy uh hastily churned out or you know amateurish attempts by, <laughs> by you know writers that later you know make a bigger name for themselves you know, Interesting. So some of, you know so some of phil dick's like worst fiction honestly is the most is the most precognitive and and you know same with there's a you know one of the examples i use in my in time loops of of uh, norman mailer one of his early novels just a crappy awful novel but <laughs> but you know uncannily precognitive of something that was going to happen to him a few late, years later um I, I there's there's some or well, the famous, most famous example is Morgan Robertson, who famously precognized the sinking of the Titanic. Uh, right. He wrote, wrote a novel about a sinking of the Titan uh, when it hit a iceberg in the North Atlantic on an April night. You know, it's like all the details are practically a line up uh, right down the the, the line uh, with the real event that happened twelve years later. But the novel itself is, I mean, if you actually read it, it's like it's it's so bad. <laughs> I love that. It's, it's so hilarious. <laughs> well, one of the areas that, and this goes back to something we shared, we were in Esalen, we met again in Esalen for a conference. And one of the things that was shared at the conference was this ability to sort of sense into the future in some sense in, in a life or death situation is in, in often in, in the military or in special forces. Yeah. They very quickly bond or or get or or form you know groups form around people who can do that, and they very quickly know like in a little special forces team who in that team, 
is able to sort of maybe have a sense that that's not the right way to go. Yep. 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 That's it's, and it's, I should take this path. It's actively being studied by the, by, uh, I know the Navy, uh, is studying it. I'm, I'm sure it's being studied, you know, across the armed forces. Um, absolutely. Yep. Spidey sense. Yeah. Right. The, the, the spidey sense. That's, that's fascinating. Um, uh, uh, there was uh, oh uh, and, and psychedelics. How do they interact with this this this, this notion? That's a great question, and I'm not you know I'm not an, a super expert on this topic, so I don't want to like you know I don't want to say too much there. However, you're, you're not microdosing right now because no, it seems like everyone else is. No, no definitely <laughs> not. But uh, not that there's anything wrong with that. But no, but, <laughs> yeah, right. But um, but. Uh, actually, the the literature on ayahuasca is very interesting, um, uh, as far as precognition goes. Uh, uh, this, I, I suspect, uh, among other things, uh, the you know psychedelics really open up, you know, this sort of precognitive capacity. Um, there are some great stories. Um, you know, one of one of my favorites is uh, the the shaman shamanism scholar Michael Harner. Um, he his first experience with uh, with ayahuasca was with I believe it was with the I want to say it was with the Hivaro Indians. I'm I'm not positive of that, but he was in South America in any event, uh, and he had uh, had this experience on ayahuasca and. And he had in this experience, he had this vision of this great serpent uh, rising up and vomiting forth a river. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember the other. It sounds like an ayahuasca vision. Right. And I don't remember the other (laughs) details, but anyway, so the next day he's leaving that village uh, and he's on a boat with some missionaries and he tells them about this experience and the missionaries kind of look at each other and kind of get this look on their face and they pull out their Bibles and they show him book of revelations uh, where there's this image of this serpent rising and vomiting forth a river. And Michael Harner, of course is thinking, Oh, he's like, wow. He's had this, this, this vision of uh, like a real archetypal reality. Well, you can also read it as precognition that he's precognizing this striking uh, encounter, uh, you know, with the book of revelations the next morning, you know, on a boat. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. There's another example, a very similar example. You know, when I got interested in this, I sort of, um, I, I took down uh, from my shelf um, the, the, the sort of thin, collection called the Yahe letters by uh, William S. Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg, which is about mm-hmm. their experiences uh, with Yahe or, or, or ayahuasca. <clears throat> and um, there's a wonderful experience uh, that, that uh, Allen Ginsberg had. Um, I don't know if it was his first ayahuasca experience, but uh, similarly it, uh, although he doesn't express it this way or even notice this fact, it matches uh, something that he wrote about experiencing the next day. And 
I'm thinking, gosh, this 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 could be uh, this is fascinating. Could be an important dimension of psychedelic experience. That's but, wild. But it's you know, and probably dramatized it in some incredible way. I imagine. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, <laughs> you know, I, I I have a lot of hunches, but I don't. It's not uh, a realm that I've I've directly explored, unfortunately. So a, a few more questions, and, and maybe these are a little more speculative, and then I want to ask you about, you know, how people can go about this exploration on their own. But uh, one thing is, sometimes I, I think people, you, you mentioned shamanism a lot tonight, and sometimes I think, you know, especially in the progressive spiritual worlds that I'm familiar with, sometimes people can think, well, this is some, these, realizing these or, or enacting these potentials in, the, in, in ourselves and getting in touch with this, it represents future evolution of the species in some sense. And, and, and maybe that's true. But I also think that it, it is as much or more or not mostly also reclaiming uh, or reenacting things that may have been more present in the species earlier in cultural history. Now, maybe not in, we, we're not going to look at those through the lens that we can look at them today, but that these things were more, do you, do you have a take on that? Is this something that you think is, is uh, we were more immersed in these kinds of experiences or these kinds of awarenesses in, in a, as you said, this is something that's been through throughout human history. Really, yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I, I think, I think both are true. I think, I think, yeah, yeah. I think, uh, yes, we people back in the day, and people in in more traditional cultures still today are much more in tune with their intuitive, naturally precognitive um, side. That I believe that it's, necess- it's nevertheless always operating, that it's always there, and that it's a basic part of our cognition. But I think uh, in cultures that sort of make a place for whatever right. you want, whatever you want to call it, yeah, you know, I get uh, it. Yeah, and, and by that I don't mean to romanticize it right. necessarily. That yeah. I'm not trying to say this is some they were right. they had it together. No, no, I'm not. That, I don't, that, I don't that, mean that. I just mean that yeah. it may have been more something a little more. Yeah, active. No, absolutely. I mean, if you if your culture makes a place for shamans, then you've got there's there's a a, a way to express this and a way to think about your dreams in this way. Uh, And if there's a if your culture makes a place for mediumship or whatever, you know, you're you're going to have you're going to be able to talk about these experiences. You're going to be able to have an idiom in which to express them and, and explain them now, but you also talked about, let me, let me though also say why I think there is a kind of evolution uh, dimension to it because uh, those traditional cultures also uh, almost, I don't know of any culture that has, has ever had a concept of precognition the way, the way I think, uh, contemporary physics is kind of enabling us to think, yes, think about exactly. That. Yeah. And I think I'm, I'm quite excited about, or, or could bring science to it or bring technology to or technology. Exactly. Yeah. To, to, to really think about, uh, well, what does this really mean? What are we really seeing in a dream? You know? Yeah. Uh, and the idea of, of, of being able to bring sort of modern scientific understandings, uh, of, of time and and so on 
to these experiences, I think could be transformative uh, because I mean, I don't, uh, while there are, there are certainly, I guess, precursors, I think, to the idea of like the long self uh, in, you know, say Eastern, Eastern philosophies and so on. I, I think that bringing a kind of modern kind of scientific understanding to this could really, I don't know. I, I, in my most optimistic <laughs> and hopeful moments, I think it could really lead to a new kind of threshold of understanding uh, of our lives um, yeah, and, sure. and have, you know, profound implications for how we treat the earth and how we treat each other. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, and, I, and open up new scientific and technological paradigms potentially. I'm yes, sure. absolutely. I mean, there, there, it's really, uh, there's a potential for very exciting things and not, and, and also, uh, in, in the, not just the sciences, but the humanities. I mean, if, yeah, if, we, sure. if, you know, once it is accepted that, that human experience has this four dimensional quality to it. I mean, imagine how this could like the, the new realms it will open up for, you know, philosophy, for history, for, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of fields. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a big advocate of, of the humanities and the importance of the humanities uh, in, in our, scientific yeah. technological world yeah. uh and gosh there are just oh, there's so many realms that that this potentially opens up uh new ways of thinking about history and and biography and well let me expand for a moment before we just we kind of end uh on on the coming back kind of down to earth let me let me go to the mo- the biggest sort of metaphysics and and try to capture this question for you or either respond to it <clears throat> As, as I think I expressed when we first met, I'm I'm a, I'm a fan of Teilhard de Chardin and uh, the the Catholic uh, Jesuit mystic and uh, and 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 a lot and some evol- what is called in 20th century um, terms evolutionary mysticism of him and, and a number of other thinkers and now now he was interesting in the sense that he had this kind of omega point. I mean, his teleology was very uh, specific. He had this kind of like you know, the universe or at least human development is, is, or is, is headed toward this Omega point. And, and that, that this future uh, presence is sort of pulling us forward in history. Right. So in a certain way, I, 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 I mean, you know, his, his metaphysics sort of line up very in, in an interesting way with what you're sharing. Mm-hmm. I totally and, agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I thought that that's interesting. Now, now that ironically, the Omega point has never been the thing about his evolutionary mysticism that I was most in, in, in entranced by. But I do think there's, you know, I, I was thinking about this, and as I was, I was had a conversation with Jeff Kripal, you know, our, our friend, and 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 I was, it got me thinking about this block universe idea. And one of the things you notice, you know, historically, and if you go back five hundred years, or a thousand years, or two thousand years. You know, there there was there was conceptions of the universe that were sort of like almost entirely cyclical. Like the universe is the metaphysics was where this is a universe of cycles. And then there's on another maybe polarity, there was a conception of the universe as sort of being uh, in some religious views as being sort of 
uh, eschatological, you know, driven to a particular end. And in, in, in a certain way, those were sort of competing narratives of, of the universe. And, and, uh, and you see this in, and as I start explored the various evolutionary visions over the last 200 years, since we've had this sort of revelation of evolution, you, you see visions that sort of line up on a more, what I often call the esoteric evolutionists, which tend to be a little more cyclical in nature and maybe uh, like sort of what is unfolding is what was previously folded up, you know, <laughs> if that makes sense. So, but then you ask yourself, well, is that really evolutionary or is that just something is unrolling that was rolled up? You know, it's like, uh, and, and then on the other side, you have the, like these much more open-ended sort of creative, the possibility, the creative free, you know, like the, you know, so the, the free, everything's open and free and could go in any way. And, and I would sort of argue that, that neither of those are true, but they represent these polarities that, that the, the truth is maybe includes both of them in some way. I don't know. What, how do you think, how does, how has this forced you to think about, uh, I mean, I've tended more on the creative, the, the open creative side, because I think that's, that's my uh, tendency, but, but I, I, but you know, your work is sort of leans to the other side. So anyway, how do you think about that kind of polarity or that kind of way of thinking? I know that's a huge metaphysical question, but I'm no, I, I, I think about this a lot and I think there's a third, there's a third way. <clears throat> yeah. And the third way is that, it, and it, and it, I think is more along the lines of how I read that Omega point idea uh, mm -hmm. that, that the future really is causative, that the future is, uh, is a sort of equal partner if you want uh, in, in creation and that, and that, uh, that, uh, that, so a lot of that, it's not, I like that. It's an equal partner in, in, yeah, in the creation, exactly. in the creative process. That, it's like, that's almost giving it like a whiteheadian thing. Like you're, you're dealing with the past and the future all comes into the present. Yes. Yeah. 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 And <clears throat> I think that, uh, that there's, um, this the this, the same processes that I think are operating on in our lifespan and in our lives, you know, biologically in our brains and nervous systems and so on, are also operating on a cosmological scale uh, in other ways. I mean, I suspect we're going to learn that the universe is not that the universe is riddled, for instance, with wormholes and with other uh, with other who knows exotic structures that are yeah. pulling, you know, matter and energy into the past. Uh, and that, 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 that technological achievements of intelligent beings, um, will enable, uh, a kind of deliberate utilization of time travel and, and, and have they already, and have are, they already, are we being, are we already the product of that kind of, of some kind of process like that? Uh, there's all kinds of cool speculations, but I, I think kind of it's inevitable, uh, that if not us, I mean, we may, I mean, we could, you know, readily destroy ourselves, but, but intelligent beings elsewhere, <laughs> if not us, and we'll achieve that, we'll achieve that and we'll, and, uh, so that there is kind of a telos, of intelligence in the universe uh, towards its own retro kind of creation. I, I think yeah, that, that, yeah. that ultimately some ultimate intelligence 
that maybe a merger of of many intelligences all over the universe may uh, exert a causative force on on the Big Bang or you know the the, the earliest yeah. you know, origins. I, I I really think that there's that it's going to turn out that that you know even something as basic as physical law is a, a sort of a compromise of 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 causative principles uh, going both directions um, in time. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I, I think that, that time loops are going to be a, a big, big like, part of our understanding of yeah, cosmology. Because in a certain way, that Tehardian vision is one big time loop, yeah, I guess, yeah, in a certain yeah. way. Yeah, At the same time, I don't, I, I, somehow I don't, I don't want to, maybe this is just me, I don't want to think of it as a closed loop exactly. No. Somehow. Yeah. Right. Uh, it can be an open uh, loop. I don't know. That's, that's it's such a complex. Question. It's not really a loop. Yeah. It's a knot. Yeah. I mean, it's like an infinitely unfolding knot, you know, but it goes yeah. back. That we're participating in. That we're somehow. participating in. But it's not just Taylor. I mean, you know, John Wheeler, the, the, the physicist. Yeah. Um, right. You know, his, this is what he gravitated toward uh, late in his career uh, was this vision of uh, the universe as a, what is it? A self enclosed circuit and uh he even had a diagram uh he you know, that that appeared in his notes uh of the universe he would represent the universe as a big u big letter u and on one of the tips of the u there was an eyeball and it was looking back at the other tip which was the big bang and so you know Beautiful. like like this this evolution yeah. towards intelligence yeah. which was observe which was creating the universe through observation and it was sort of yeah Right, yeah. right, yeah. It kind of full calls back to that quantum, yeah, idea. And, and I, I mean, if I look at what's going on in the universe, and we can, do, we're, just, we're just speculating here. But you know, agency seems to be such a part of what's happening, right? That that whatever that agency that he's talking about, and more than observation, agency in all in its forms. That's what that's what by you know that's what conscious life is in some sense. It's it's this explosion of agency. Uh, that seems to be so critical now, but I love the idea of the future being an equal partner in that agency somehow. That's really interesting. Yeah, I uh, I've become very, I don't know, anthropic <laughs> in my thinking. I don't want to <laughs> yeah. say anthropocentric, uh, but uh, I I I think that. Well, I always say we, it's fine to be anthropocentric. We we just have we're not sufficiently anthropocentric. We have to you know our well, our anthropocentric. We have a paucity. Uh, <laughs> our our anthropocentrism is is insufficient. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, I just I, I I think that that anthropic principle is is very compelling. Oh, I'm sorry, you were talking about anthropic. I thought you were talking about anthropocentric. Well, I'm 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 sort of playing on words there. I I yeah. I <laughs> uh, I. I want to be anthropic without being anthropocentric, I guess. <laughs> right. I get but, it, right. Yeah, uh, yeah. But that idea that the, the universe is uncannily fine tuned for our own existence, uh, I think is an expression of, of this possibility of, of, of this, this retro causal uh, relationship of a future intelligence uh, on, on the sort of the very conditions of, of its own being. Um, so all, which is to say, you know, these are, you know, very grand thoughts, but I all, which is to say, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you as far as my yeah, intuitions, cool. as far as, uh, how this relates to cosmology and.
So, so how can individuals bring this into their lives? What, what do you, what do you, what are you suggesting? How can they start to, in, in their own day to day lives, like participate in this long self, whether that's the long self of their own lives or the long self of this larger project we're all, of all of our lives? Exactly. The first, yeah, it's very, it's very easy. Uh, and dream work is really the key to it. It's, it, you know, there are other ways of exploring precognition for, you know, advanced players. Uh, and, you know, you can explore it in meditation and creativity and, and so on and so forth. But dreams are the easiest uh, and the easiest way to start. And, uh, and it's a really simple three-step process. And I'll, I like that. I'll tell you what it is right now. <laughs> First step is, should be obvious is keep a dream journal. And that means put a notebook and a pen by your bedside. And when you wake up uh, in the morning, at least, and if you wake up in the middle of the night as well, write down everything you can remember of your dreams. Uh, And now it's not going to be all your dreams. I mean, we dream throughout the night and anything you remember of your dreams is just a tiny fraction of that. So don't worry about the fact that some, a lot of it has slipped away, but whatever you can remember, whatever you can capture, write it down. And that's and in detail, as much detail as you can get. Right. That's step one. Step two is take a moment to free associate on your dream records. When you, when you write them down, what is the first thing this reminds me of? What is the first thing that this character, this person in the dream, you know, what's the first thing that comes to mind? You know, right. it may be some situation, some very particular situation, some, uh, whatever it is. Um, what is it that calls, what is it that that reminds me of? Yeah, right. like that, that the feeling of that, you know, like dreams of, Oh, that feeling reminded me of that. You know, yes, right. exactly. It's, it'll be, it'll be something very specific and very, you know, almost so stupidly specific that you almost don't want to put it into words, but do it, put it into words, write down that thing. Okay. That's the second step. Third, then set it aside. Then just set it, set your dream records aside and don't even, you don't even need to think about them. But the third step at the end of every day, you know, when you get in bed, the end of the day, look over your dream records again. And look over your dream records from that morning as well as the previous few mornings, okay? And just reflect on those dreams in relation to things that have happened in that intervening time. Uh, Because it's that step, that third step um, that I I think I mentioned before, nobody thinks to do. But that is the real key to precognitive dream work because the bulk of precognitive dreams, especially if you're a beginner, or you're going to detect dreams that relate to some event in your, that's imminent in your life, you know, over the next few days. Dreams often may relate to events that are farther out in time. They often relate to events that are exactly a year or multiple years ahead in the future. And this is something that you will detect uh, when you start keeping a dream journal over the course of years. Uh, It's a very common phenomenon. Uh, But you're going to, you're going to get the most success. You're going to bag the most sort of, you know, hits, uh, uh, over the, it, with events that occur a couple, you know, within a couple days, within a few days after you've dreamed about them. And so, you know, the first step is really to start recording, start putting little asterisks by those dreams that, that seem to relate to a, a subsequent event. Uh, and, and start accumulating examples of these, 
uh, and you will be rewarded uh, relatively quickly. Um, Interesting. Uh, you know, I, I don't make any guarantees. I'm, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to get, I'm You're... not able, I'm not in a position to give you a, a, a refund uh, <laughs> on your book if you, but, but I, I, you know, I've, I've been ever since the book came out a month and a half ago, I've been inundated with emails from people, uh, telling me, you know, amazing stories of, of, oh, cool. of precognitive dreams. Yeah. Like that, um, uh, after reading my book. So, uh, and we, we can add them in step four, which is if you are interested, you can buy the book. <laughs> pre- pre- well, right, dream work and a long right. self. There you right. <laughs> But uh, no, the all all you really need to do is those first three first three steps, and um, uh, and you know sooner or later you will be rewarded. Well, that's great, Eric. I, it's so fun to talk. I enjoy it, and uh, yeah, look forward to the next time. And thanks for doing this. I want to thank Eric for joining me today in the podcast. And once again, the book is called Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self. And you can follow Eric's work more closely also by following his blog where he writes about science fiction, consciousness, and parapsychology. It's called The Nightshirt. All right, that's it for today's episode. A reminder that you can always follow this podcast more closely by signing up for my newsletter, which is also called Thinking Ahead. And you can sign up for that at carterphipscom newsletter. Thanks so much for joining me today and I'll see you next time.